There's a funny phrase that you hear sometimes that parents say to one another. It's a phrase that is often a result of their child doing something that they're not supposed to do. It's this phrase right here. It's, look what your child did. Now, rarely does that happen when the child did something that was great. Like you don't see the child for the first time counting the 10, the child making a game-winning basket, the child doing something awesome, and then the spouse saying, look at what your child did. No, in those moments, it's, that's my boy. That's my girl. You see that? That's me. That's my genetics going on right there. But when your child does something that is one of three things, either it is evil, it is stupid, or it is gross. If your child does one of those three things, what tends to happen is one spouse looks at the other spouse and they say, look what your child did. As if this is not my fault, the stupidity that is happening in this moment is entirely a result of you. It has nothing to do with me. The more you parent, the more you figure out that half of parenting is trying to convince your child that they're going to have certain desires and urges in their life and they've got to figure out how to ignore or not do those urges. That there are these certain desires that if we don't learn how to control those desires, they will ultimately wreck us, wreck everything. It reminds me of something that just seems so stupid that a lot of people think that it's not true. It's called a monkey trap. Anybody ever heard of a monkey trap before? So if you Google monkey trap, there's this debate on whether or not there is such a thing as a monkey trap, but we've got a video of a monkey trap that is definitely a real thing. And so basically what it is, is they take a coconut and they carve out inside the coconut a hole. And at the bottom of the coconut, they put something that the monkey would want, like a piece of fruit. And what happens is they reach into the coconut, they grab onto the piece of fruit. Once they make a fist, what happens? They can't get it out anymore. And now as stupid, like people don't think it's true because they think to themselves, nobody, including a monkey, is that stupid. And yet that's exactly what happens. Like you can find videos where they take, they take a jar or a coconut and they chain it down to the ground or they embed it into the ground. They make the hole, they put something enticing in it. The monkey grabs on and then literally people will come up and capture the monkey and it still won't let go. Like it's holding on so tight to that thing that it can't think of anything else. All it has to do is just drop it. Just open the hand and the hand would slide right out. As adults, there are certain desires that we have that are just like that. We're going to talk about a topic today that Jesus talks about this topic more than any other topic in the New Testament. He talks about it all the time. And he's constantly trying to warn us. Why? Because he wants us to understand that this is a desire in our life that if we don't prioritize it the right way, it will wreck us. Uh, there's a verse in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is talking. This is what he says. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, before you start freaking out and say, oh man, this is, it's a money talk at church. I just hate those. They're about to pass the offering plate. Even in COVID, they're just going to start passing. Let's just take a step back from the normal anxieties and trepidations we have about the subject and try and figure out the why. Why is it that Jesus talks about money so much? 
sometimes we think that, well, then money must be evil. And I don't want you to hear that money is evil because that's not what he says. What he clearly says is that the love of money is what can wreck your life. Just like the monkey. So I brought with us essentially a monkey trap. My hand goes in and out totally, totally fine. But the moment that I grab on, guess what happens? All of a sudden, my hand doesn't fit out anymore. I can pull, I can tug, no matter what I do, I can't get my hand out. Materialism is a trap that Jesus preaches against over and over and over again. Why? Because he understands that once it takes root of your life, once it takes root of my life, it is so, so hard to let it go. It's so hard to let it go. And when I won't let it go, guess what? It traps me. And it becomes something that just chains me for the rest of my life. It's something that can absolutely destroy me unless I learn the cure, unless I learn how it is to let go of material things. If you've got your Bible, open with me to Philippians chapter 4. We've been in this series. This is our last week of this series. Looking at this entire chapter. Philippians chapter 4, we're picking up in verse 14. Paul's talking. He's writing this letter to the church in Philippi and he says this. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Pause for a second and understand what he's saying. He's saying, it's not that I'm just trying to get money to get rich. He says, no, I'm seeking the fruit. I'm seeking to use that for the kingdom of God. I'm trying to evangelize the world. That Paul recognizes that the way that he can help spread the gospel is through this financial help. And what does he say? He says, I'm increasing that fruit because of your credit. He says, I want you to know that what you have given has gone on to do great and amazing things for the kingdom of God. Verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites, that's a tricky one. If you're, if you're looking for a name for your child, maybe you're pregnant. That's, uh, that's one that, that they would just go with EPAP probably. They just they got tired of spelling that and they just shortened it really quickly. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the Old Testament, that before Jesus, that in order to atone for their sins, what did they have to do? They would have to make animal sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices would happen in the Holy of Holies. And right outside the Holy of Holies, they would be burning this incense. And so this picture of what he's talking about, it's harking back to understanding the Old Testament. He's saying that your gifts, the gifts, the financial gifts that you are giving to me, he said, they are like this fragrant offering to God. So in the Old Testament, they would make this, this animal sacrifice in order to atone for their sins. And if they did it with the right heart, this, throughout the Old Testament, uses this exact phrase. 
this pleasing aroma to God, that when our hearts are in the right place, that we've aligned our heart and are doing things with the right motivation, it's this act of worship. Paul is saying that this church, as they are giving, what are they doing? They're doing it in this act of worship that is pleasing to God. And then he says, by giving, if you'll just trust in God, what will he do? He says, and God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a verse that sometimes we can twist. We can falsely take that verse and apply it and say, well, prosperity gospel. It means that if, if I give, then automatically God's going to give me tenfold back financially. And so I'm just going to keep giving. And guess what? Here's what's tricky about the prosperity gospel. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes... The gift, the supply that God gives me is a financial supply, but not always. It's not guaranteed. Paul's writing from prison. You think he would have liked to have been out of prison? Probably. You think he even maybe prayed to be out of prison? Maybe so. What was the new supply that God gave to Paul? Well, it wasn't what he asked for. It wasn't what he wanted. It was probably patience. It was probably trust even in long-suffering. What ultimately happens to Paul? He dies a martyr's death. Did God give him what he needed, a new supply in that moment? Yes. Now, it probably wasn't what he wanted that new supply to be, but he gave him the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand for truth even in the face of death. You and I, that when we live a life where we are practicing what God has called us to live, God gives us this new supply. Whatever we are facing in that moment right now, the months to come, the weeks to come, God gives us a new supply. It's not always how we'd want it. It's not always in the circumstances that we want. But when we trust in him, he gives us this new supply. That what they have figured out in Philippi is the answer to the big problem. The big problem being Materialism. Materialism is this terrible, terrible cycle. It's this cycle where it starts with this desire that I desire to have something else. That there's this lie in the back of my head that thinks that if I get this thing, then I'm going to be happy. There's probably something right now in your mind. You've looked at it on, on the internet, maybe on social media. Maybe you've seen it in a catalog. Maybe you've seen a TV commercial, if you still watch TV commercials. But there's something probably in the back of your mind that you think, if I had that, man, it would be great. Could be a new car. Could be a new house. Could be new shoes. Could be new clothes. Whatever that thing is, we think that, man, if I just get that, I have this desire. And if I get it, then, woo, man. I'm going to look good, and life is going to be good. And then what happens? We get it. And that leads us to not being as fulfilled as we thought we were going to be. That that thing, whatever it is, however shiny, however awesome in the moment, doesn't last. And so before long, what happens? We desire more. Before long, it turns to the next thing. It turns to some other thing, some other shiny gadget that we think, oh, if I just get that. You see that cycle with technology all the time. It's about that time of year where what's Apple going to do? They're going to come out with a new iPhone. And you start looking at your old iPhone. You're like, man, this thing's a piece of junk. I really need that new one. It's faster. I mean, I, all I do on my phone is, is really search the internet and maybe make some phone calls, but not very many. I need a faster device in order to do more of that. The screen is this much bigger than the old screen. 
And so we see the new one and we're like, oh man, if I had that, it'd be great. And then guess what? We get the new one and it's not long before what happens. There's a newer new one that comes out. And before long, that old one you're looking at, like, oh, this piece of junk, it's got a crack across the screen because I keep dropping it all the time. But if I got a new one, it's a cycle that never ends. Why does Jesus rail against the love of money? Because he understands that we get so consumed with earthly material things that we lose perspective of eternity. It's kind of like this. Have you ever bragged about a game of Monopoly way after the game? Like probably right now, you, you don't have maybe people you played Monopoly with 10 years ago that you call up and like, hey, you remember that time we were playing Monopoly? And I dominated. I mean, like I had Boardwalk and I had Park Place, had all the green ones, you know, all the yellow ones. By the end, like it was just money, 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 money for me. You remember that game? Like nobody does that. Why? Because... In the scheme of life, monopoly, while fun in the moment, is pretty insignificant. We get obsessed with material things, and it's just monopoly money. In the eternal perspective of things, all the things that we have right now in this moment, all the material possessions that you and I will ever have turn to dust, and they're gone. It's no different than monopoly money. But Jesus understands that generosity, the opposite, going the other direction, helps to free us from that trap. And not only free us from that trap, science backs up that there's tons of benefits. Listen to this. University of Zurich in Switzerland, Dr. Felipe Tobler, he's a social neuroscientist. That means he's smart. He says this. Studies have shown that older people who are generous tend to have better health. And other research has indicated that spending money on others can be as effective at lowering blood pressure as medication or exercise. Moreover, there is a positive association between helping others and life expectancy, perhaps because helping others reduces stress. There's all these benefits that happen as a result of being generous. The best way to cure a love of money is what? Is to learn how to give it away. The more I can give something away, the less it ensnares and entangles me. The way I cure materialism is through generosity. I learn to give. I give frequently. I give overwhelmingly. What, what is generosity? Well, what does it even look like? Here's a simple definition. It's incurring a cost to confer a benefit. It means that for me to be generous that I have to sacrifice something. I have to be giving up something in order for somebody else to benefit from that. So financially, if I am being generous with my money, I'm using money that I could spend on material things, I could spend on myself, and instead I'm choosing to give it to someone else. I can be generous with my time. I could choose to go volunteer. I could choose to go help. I could choose to do something that I could have done something selfish with that time, something that benefits myself with that time, but instead I'm using that time for someone else. Generosity is this way that we can put on display the gospel. Christians should understand and comprehend generosity better than anybody in the world. Why? Because what Christ did for us is generous. That he incurred a cost to confer a benefit. That we can be made in a right standing relationship with God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Sometimes we think that once I become a Christian, it, it just means that I get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like that's the end of it. And that is as part of being a Christian, that now I have right standing in a relationship with God. I can be with him for eternity in heaven, have an eternal perspective. But what does the other part say? It says that he died so that I might live for him. What does that look like? That means I'm no longer living for myself. People from the outside, when they're looking and examining my life, one of the main attributes should be generosity. That I am choosing to incur costs in order to confer benefits with my time, with my possessions, with my money. Generosity is not an accident. You don't wake up one day and just say, man, I wasn't trying to. I accidentally gave like 10% of my wealth away today. I mean, it was just crazy. That It has to be intentional. It has to be a habit that we build into our lives. How are we practicing that habit? How are we developing that habit? Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I, I just, I'm not gifted to give. Like that's not my spiritual gift. And so because that, I just don't do it. And there is a spiritual gift in the New Testament of giving. There are some people that, that have it. Most of you are like, no, that's not my gift. I tell you that. I'll have one of those other ones like encouragement maybe because it doesn't cost me anything. But no, not giving. I, I don't want to do that. So there are people that just have this natural bent and lean towards being empathetic towards other people. They constantly just want to give and give and give. But all Christians, all of us are called to give. So even if it's not my gift, it needs to become my discipline. What does that mean? If it's not natural for me to do it, I need to figure out what are some ways I can train myself in my life to make it more comfortable, make it more easy, make it more of a routine. Let's talk for a second about why people don't give. Like I just took a step back and said, okay, why in my own life, when I've got moments where I'm not being generous, why is that? I came up with four main reasons. The number one is that I don't have enough money. Like you think, you know, if I had a whole lot more money, I would be the most generous person in the world. You, you've played that game probably where you think in your mind, if I got $100 million tomorrow, like some distant relative that passed away that I didn't know anything about, and all of a sudden I just have $100 million, I'd probably give away like half of it because it'd be easy for me to give away money that I don't currently have. That we think that, and yet... The science doesn't back it up. Listen to this. There's a book called The Paradox of Generosity by a couple of sociologists. Here's what they found in research. That 60% of the people below the poverty line gave in the last year. Only 32% of the people above the poverty line gave. Now the poverty line globally are people that live on less than $2 a day. I mean, they have almost literally nothing. And yet most of them over the course of the year, even though they had what we would consider almost nothing, chose to give something. And yet people above the line, people that had significantly more than those that were below the line, a much smaller percentage chose to give. 
When it comes to a percentage of your wealth that you're giving, they found that the more that you make, the less of a percentage that you give. Why is that? It's, it's because of this myth. It's because once I've got it, it's so hard to let go. And again, it's not that money itself is evil. It's the love of money. That when that becomes the desire of my heart and my life above and over the desire to live for and please Jesus, it becomes a problem. Now, the second is that I, I'm oblivious. Like I just don't recognize the needs of others around me. I can get so easily in my bubble that I don't see that there are other people hurting. There are other people that I could be helping in one way, shape, or another. A third is that I just think somebody else is going to fix it. Like I know that there's problems out there, but it's easy for me to read about some super rich people. And I just think, man, if they'll just give some more money, all these problems would go away. I, I just don't have enough to fix it. But man, if, if Gates or Bezos or, or Zuckerberg, man, if they would just step up and give away some of those billions, then man, we could, we could solve this thing. Or maybe I think it's the government's job to do that. Man, if the government would just fix this, then I don't have to worry about it. But no, as Christians, we are called to be generous. The last is this. And, and this is probably the most true, but it's the most difficult to wrestle with, the reality that I am selfish. Part of the reason I don't give is because I don't want to. When it comes right down to it, I don't value giving as much as I value receiving and keeping and spending. And so I don't give because I just have this other stuff that I would rather spend my money on. Okay, so how do we flip that upside down? How do we start practicing? How do we start teaching? Four other things. The first is that we've got to model it. We've got to model giving. If you're a parent and you want to raise a child that's going to be a giver, how do you do that? You model giving. You live generously. Well, what's an easy way to do that? Christians should be the best tippers in the world. When you go to a restaurant or you go, uh, you, you get takeout and they're bringing it to you, uh, these days when not many people are going to restaurants. So when that guy's dropping it off at the door, all, all the different areas in your life that you could be tipping, Christians should be those Christians that it's grace-based tipping. Like I'm not tipping you because I'm sitting there the moment that you start serving me, I'm like, all right, let's see, how fast are they? All right, let's see, did they do a good job of remembering my order? Did they make a mistake? All right, I'm, I'm docking percentage points right now. Were they very friendly today? Nope, they were not friendly at all. So I'm just, instead of 20%, I'm marking you down and I'm, I'm gonna give you a handwritten note that says, do better. That's my tip for you today, all right? Good luck. Now as Christians, it should be, I am tipping you not based off of what you deserve. I'm tipping you because I know that I don't deserve anything. And in order to exemplify the gospel every day in my life, I'm going to tip and tip big. I'm going to be generous with who I am and with what I have. Our church benefits from generosity. During this season, we've had givers that have done an amazing job when things are tricky and things are difficult. The history of this church goes back to generosity. We were started in 1927. When we were started in 1927, we didn't have a building, and there's a handful of families that said we will mortgage and leverage our mortgages in order for us to buy a building. Do you know what happened right after 1927? 1929, the beginning of the Great Depression. 
in a moment where it became really, really difficult to give, it would have been really easy for them to say, all right, I am out, I am done. There's a church across the street, I'm just gonna go to that one, I'm gonna find another place. No, instead, they kept on giving. That generosity continued when we started our West Campus. People did the same thing, that they put up huge sacrifice to themselves in order for us to have a vision. No church at that point was doing multi-site. Like this was this unheard of thing. It kind of sounded crazy. And yet there were people that were willing to generously give. How do we model that? The next thing we've got to do is we've got to talk about it. Talk about giving. Now, understand there's a distinction between talking about and bragging about, all right? That they've actually found in studies that when you are giving for the benefit of the health or you're giving for the benefit or the notoriety that there's zero health benefits. So like if you recognize, okay, I just heard the study. It's, I have a longer life expectancy if I'm more generous. And so I'm gonna just start giving out money. Like if your motive is wrong, you don't get the benefit. Or if your motive is, all right, I'm gonna start posting all the time on social media about how amazing I am at giving. And I'm gonna start talking about the money that I'm giving. That the benefits that come with generosity do not exist when you talk about it. So I'm not talking about bragging about it. I'm talking about having the conversations, having conversations with your kids. Why do we give? Having conversations with other people about ministries that you've found out about. You don't need to tell them how much you're giving to it. Just talk about the need to give, the importance to give, how valuable it is to give. The next thing is we've got to learn perspective. It's hard to give when I only am looking at my own life and looking at the lives above me. Like it's easy for me to look at rich people and say, oh, I want that and I want that and I want that. You talk to most people and they don't think they're rich. Even rich people don't think they're rich. Why? Because they know somebody that's richer than they are. They know somebody else that has a whole lot more. And so you say, are you wealthy? Like, well, I mean, not really, because I don't have a yacht and I know a friend that does. And so they are rich, I am not. It's so easy to be consumed by people that have more instead of what? Looking around and recognizing that a huge chunk of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Man, I I just have so much. We have so much more than we realize or recognize. Maybe you don't have as much as you want, but do you have enough to give? It's more of a mindset than it is anything to do with the actual amount that you've got. The last is this, we've got to practice gratitude. That through the chapter of Philippians 4, what does Paul talk about? He talks about being thankful about praising God in all circumstances, that we're supposed to fill our minds with what? Whatever's pure, whatever's holy, whatever's right. That when I change my mind and start living a life of gratitude where I'm giving God praise for the things that are in my life, it starts to change my perspective. How do I get unstuck from this? When this is the trap that is just so easily entangling us, the more I can start focusing on God. And focusing on gratitude and focusing on being thankful for what God has given me. Guess what it does? It starts to turn upside down my understanding of material things. Because my natural understanding of material things is that I 
did it. I am so great and I am so smart and I'm so awesome that as a result of my awesomeness, I have the things that I have. But gratitude recognizes and says, you know what? Everything I have in this life is a gift from God. Everything I have is not something that I deserve. It's something that he has richly blessed me with. And so once I start to change that perspective, guess what starts to happen? I start to loosen my grip on those things that can so easily entangle my life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul again is writing and he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Does he say, hey, listen, here's a note for all the rich people in your congregation. You need to just get rid of all the money that you have because money is evil. No, that's not what he says. He says, use the wealth that God has given you for him, for his glory. And then what's the word that he says? He says, you are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's the bottom line when when it comes to how Jesus tangles with money in the New Testament. It's that if Jesus doesn't have my wallet, then he doesn't have my heart. That he tells parable after parable about money. There's story after story where he's combating against materialism. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, "What, what should I do? What do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you got to follow the commandments. And he says, I'm doing that. I'm living that life. And then Jesus says, hey, sell everything that you've got. Give it to the poor and follow me. And he says, that I can't do. And the Bible says that he hung his head and walked away because he had a lot. Jesus wasn't saying that everybody of all times, that you and I have to give away everything. But what he is saying is we have to be willing to. Because he knew for the rich young ruler what had his heart materialism. What had his heart was his money, his stuff. And until he was willing to let that go, Jesus knew that God would never be truly the Lord of his life. And if God isn't number one, if he doesn't have my, my wallet, then he doesn't have my heart. So, so where do we go from here? Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I, I just don't have a lot. I'm barely making it from, from week to week, from bill to bill. How do I start to give? Sometimes we feel like we just can't. We don't have enough. We're not capable. There's an amazing story about a kid who was nine years old. His name was Austin Gutwein. And at nine years old, he heard a story about AIDS. He'd never heard of AIDS before. At nine years old, he didn't understand AIDS. But he learned about a little girl named Maria who's over in Africa. That Her parents got AIDS and both of them died. And so as a nine-year-old, he at church, had been learning about being generous and, and living a life of giving. And he said, okay, I want to do something about that. And so he talks to his parents. And of course, he didn't have any money. And so he decided to do something that he loved, which was basketball. He decided to go around to his neighborhood and at his school. And he said, okay, I'm going to go shoot free throws. He shot 2,072, I believe, free throws. That was because that's the number of kids who are orphaned every day in the world because of AIDS. 2,000. 72, he said, I'm going to shoot 2,072 free throws. Will you sponsor me for every one that I make? And so someone would say, okay, I'll give you a quarter for every free throw that you make. I'll give you a nickel, a dime, a dollar. So that first year, as a nine-year-old kid, 
he raised $3,000. Like, that's pretty impressive. Like, if you're nine years old and you raised $3,000 to give to somebody, I mean, like, you could just drop the mic, like, what up, holla, I'm pretty impressive. But he doesn't stop there. He starts sharing this vision with other people. The next year, uh, he started an organization called Hoops of Hope. His parents helped him. Uh, over 1,000 kids the next year, they raised $38,000, all doing the exact same thing. The next year, there were seven states. They did over $100,000. It kept growing and growing. And listen to what Austin said. He said, it's a problem that most kids think they can't be helped, but we can do a little. And that's what a lot of people saw. Over the course of that organization, they raised multiple million dollars, uh, I think it was 1.5, over 25,000 participants as a result of them. There was two medical facilities they built in Zambia, two schools they built in Zambia, all starting with a nine-year-old kid that said, I want to give. I think sometimes it's easier for kids to give than it is for adults. Why? Because we've had a taste. We understand what we can do with money. We understand how good it feels to get that new thing. But what Jesus is saying, that if you want a fulfilled life, you've got to learn to let go.